This morning I begin a series of messages defending the Christian faith, uh, or actually take a turn in our current series dealing with some of the more intellectual issues that cause some to lose their faith. And so we're beginning a series on apologetics this morning, and I think it's entirely appropriate with the Lord's Supper because there's enormous defense of that. Uh, This morning I want to answer atheism. There's an awful lot of confusion in our day, especially among cultural leaders, about this particular issue. This was illustrated a few years ago by the British magazine The Economist. In 2000, they wrote God's obituary in their magazine. Seven years later, they had to retract it in another publication. There has been an advance and surge of interest and zeal for the name of God in many quarters around the earth. Some that among the cultural elite that they're just now discovering. There has been a pushback and a think I think a panicked and an angry pushback by some atheists. In fact, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and others have uh, done so uh, themselves. In fact, a man by the name of David Mills from West Virginia has pushed back intensely on this. Uh, these have been called the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse in some ways. Again, that's not me, that's another. A Catholic, David Mills, contacted me a few years ago and wondered if I, as a Baptist David Mills, and he, as a Catholic David Mills, would work with the atheist David Mills in producing a publication on the issue. Well, there was such a flurry of publications that never came to be, but I anticipated that uh, we would call, uh, for simplicity, me BD for the Baptist David, and the Catholic CD for the Catholic David, and the atheist AD for the atheist David. Uh, Sam Harris is actually the fourth of the atheist apocalypse. He has written some really irresponsible words on this and some bestsellers, in fact. He said some religious ideas and faith ideas about God are so dangerous that it would actually be ethical to kill those who hold them. And I would respond that the Taliban and the KGB and ISIS could not have put it any better than what he did. In fairness, most atheists would not agree with that. They would want uh, entire liberty for the rest of us. Well, not entire liberty, uh, but they certainly would not advocate killing. However, this has emboldened some on university campuses and the centers of power. And so the advance of atheism is louder, more virulent, and more irrational than I think it has been in recent memory. In Romans chapter 1, Paul infers and even makes the case for God's existence. And I want to urge you this morning and encourage you this morning you have very good reasons to believe there is a God. And I want to prove that from the text this morning. Now, as I say prove, you must understand something about the word prove. It is a word that is open to misunderstanding and even manipulation, especially if you don't understand the differences and how it's used in the different fields of academic study. Uh, There is a proof in science, in the sciences. There is a proof in logic and in mathematics. There's a proof in history and there's a proof in law and in forensics. 
Uh, it's the difference in score and points between soccer and basketball, for example. Soccer, basketball, and even football. They may all use a score. They may all use points, but the meaning and method of score and points is different in basketball, in football, and in soccer, just as it's different in mathematics and logic and science. And so you've got to understand we're talking about something entirely different. I don't believe that the question of God's existence is a scientific question. In fact, your honest scientists will deny that they can use science to prove God, though they may believe that there is a God. That's beyond the question of science. You have to be able to take something, put it in a laboratory, observe it, measure it, and you just simply can't do that with God. In fact, you cannot even do that with George Washington and whether he ever existed. That is a question for the historian. That is a question for those who deal with those kinds of historical incidences. And so when I talk about proof this morning, I'm not talking about scientific proof, and I'm not intimidated that I cannot prove God in a scientific fashion. Instead, we're talking about the uh, proof of history. We're talking more about the proof of even in forensics or law. And what I'll be asking you to do today is to make a decision on the probability of God's existence. How probable is it that he does exist? How probable is it that the atheists are right or wrong in that case? And so when we talk about proof, we're talking about something entirely different than scientific proof. And that's okay because we base a lot of our life upon other kinds of proof besides science. Science is not the queen of the sciences. It's not the utmost arbiter and judge of what is right and wrong and true and false. Now, it is an enormous help, especially in medicine. Don't get me wrong at all, in technology. Oh, it's a wonderful help. And Christians should be the most scientific people in all the earth. In fact, it's only been about 125 years ago that there's actually been a conflict between the Bible and science. And Christianity and science and much of that conflict was invented most of the leading scientists through the ages and through the centuries have done so for the glory of God and have thought as they studied they were thinking God's thoughts after him so do not buy into the invented the invented battle between God and science it, it does exist don't misunderstand me but the truth is is that the Christian faith does not require a battle against science it does require a battle against pseudoscience and unjustified claims of those who go beyond science to the existence of God. I want to repeat, though, you have good reasons to believe in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, what are they? Well, from the text in Romans 1, first is conversion. Verse number 13, Paul explains why he wants to come to Rome. And he says here in verse 13, Now I want you, do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often planned to come to you, but was hindered till now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. Paul anticipated when he got to Rome, he would preach and teach and he would have conversion fruit from among the Roman people. He would see people come to Christ while there. And that's precisely what happened when Paul got to Rome. In fact, he said the gospel penetrated the whole Praetorian Guard, which guarded Nero. And we believe Paul had the opportunity to preach the gospel to Nero. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 21, he says to the Philippians, Those of Caesar's household greet you. 
And so a church was established even in, even in Caesar's palace in Rome. And we hope one day in Las Vegas as well. And so Paul had fruit while in Rome. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 7. He said, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Then in verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So Jesus used these other terms besides fruit for the radical transformation that comes over any life that repents and believes the gospel. Conversion is something that points to the existence of God. Paul, for example, writing the book of Romans was terribly productive throughout his life. In fact, Paul shapes even our current culture. Paul has shaped much of the Western world. Paul got a hold of Augustine in the fourth century through Romans chapter 13, and he set the Western agenda for a thousand years. He got a hold of Martin Luther and set the rest of the Western agenda since the 16th century. He got a hold of John Wesley and set the agenda for the United Kingdom and prevented civil war through Romans chapter 1. He got a hold of Karl Barth and put to the test liberalism in the early 20th century through his commentary on the book of Romans. Now some have complained about the Apostle Paul and said that his conversion experience on the Damascus Road is not to be believed. You remember there he claims he met Jesus Christ there in a blinding light and Christ changed him and transformed him. Some say that the Apostle Paul had an epileptic fit. The British scholar F.F. F. Bruce replied that an epileptic fit is not an adequate explanation for the productivity of the life of the Apostle Paul. Epilepsy does not produce the kind of literature and influence in society that the Apostle Paul produced. It's not a constructive force, and so it's a silly explanation to say that the Apostle Paul was anything but converted on the Damascus Road. We require something more than that explanation to explain the Apostle Paul, I would ask you, how in the world do you explain billions and billions through the centuries, and even currently, who believe there is a God? The atheist view is the minority view. More than 90% of the world believes in God or some supreme being or reality beyond the material and what we can touch and feel. What is the probability that they're all wrong? And then the 700 million evangelicals that live today, not including those who came before us, what is the probability that none of them were touched by Almighty God and that there is no God that changed their life? Are we to conclude that they are, are, are all ignorant and deluded? Is that what we are to conclude? I was in Baltimore a couple of summers ago with our men and met an atheist on the street. My last encounter in Baltimore, I took entirely too much time with him. I should have known better. But we began to speak, and he uh, began to try to wiggle out of uh, the arguments I was giving to him for the existence of God. And he said, well, you know, of course, the Christian faith is collapsing. I said, actually, that's not true. In the United States, it's holding firm as far as the evangelicals are concerned and globally it's expanded it's expanding in Latin America it's expanding in uh, Asia it's expanding in Africa he said I think that's because of ignorance I said I don't think the Africans are ignorant and he was caught in his racism there and I would say to you you're going to have to accuse the entire world, even the world south of the equator, of being ignorant and deluded if you're going to hold to atheism. What is the probability that they're all deluded? What is the probability that they are all ignorant? Conversion. But there's a second thing, and that is creation. Beginning in verse 18, Paul said, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The invisible is clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul does not hesitate in his pluralistic world to declare God's existence and seek to prove it by the created world, and you should not hesitate to do so either. The atheistic, naturalistic evolutionist does not have the upper hand in this debate. And I'm using my terms advisedly there. In fact, in Matthew 19, 5, Jesus said this. He said, God, in the beginning, created them male and female. And that was Jesus' view of creation. There are two ideas about creation that argue intensely for the existence of God. I'll cover more of these Wednesday night. But one, the beginning of creation. It is unreasonable to believe that creation did not have a beginning. That was the majority scientific view in the 19th century. Albert Einstein, much to his chagrin, came up with the theory of relativity and proved otherwise. He didn't, however, until he looked through Hubble's telescope and came to the conclusion, indeed, that is the case. Or to quote one of my favorite theologians, Julie Andrews, Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. How in the world could we have something without a beginning? Everything has, everything that has come to be has a cause. Now somebody may say, well, what about God? Well, listen to me. Everything that has come to be has a cause. And so everything does have a beginning. Something caused Everything that came to be, God does not fit that definition. God never came to be. He is eternal and does not need a cause. But not only the beginning of creation, but the beauty of creation. A dominant scientific view, and I don't know if it's the dominant scientific view, but a dominant scientific view is materialism. And that is, you really do not have a free will, and you really do not have thoughts what you consider free will and what you consider thoughts are actually the interaction of physical forces, biological forces in your body, and you are radically predetermined to think what you think and feel what you feel and to decide as you decide. I'd like to ask those materialists who believe that, is that what you think about your materialism? Is that what you think about your atheism? In other words, you don't have any independent thoughts or free will, so why is it that you trust your own thoughts about atheism? What about beauty then? Where does beauty come from? Well, Paul would make clear in chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, God has done this in the creation. So never shy away from justifying your belief in God through creation. What is the probability and the likelihood that the created world came into being without a creator? There's much more to say about this, and we'll do so Wednesday night, but I want to move on to the third item, and that is conduct, moral conduct. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist of a previous generation or two ago, was in a debate in 1948, 
and his debate opponent asked him about morality. He said, how do you determine what is right and wrong? How do you decide between that? He said, the same way I decide whether I like the color yellow or blue. And he was pressed even further, and he said, well, according to my feelings. Well, they didn't follow up with this, but I would like to ask him, well, some cultures feel like loving their neighbors. Some feel like eating them. Do you have a preference between the two? Does it matter one way or the other? There are some atheists or agnostics and skeptics, in fact, that have even argued that it's necessary culturally and uh, socially to have a belief in God for the sake of morality. Voltaire even said, don't tell the servants there is no God, they will steal my silver. Freud even argued that belief in God was necessary, being an atheist himself. He said it's necessary to do so, so the masses will restrain their sexual impulses. Well, look at verse number 28. Look at the moral judgments that are brought to bear here. Now, there's a difference between moral judgment and judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is quickly negative. Judgmentalism is quickly dismissive of, of those who struggle. Judgmentalism is oftentimes guilty of the things it condemns itself. Judgmentalism is hypercritical, not willing to reach out in compassion and redemption. Jesus said in John 7, 24, however, judge in the imperative as a command, judge with righteous judgment. If making judgments, good sound judgments, is not appropriate, then parents have no business correcting their children. Police officers have no business making decisions about law violations and arresting criminals. We have no need for courts then if all judgments are wrong. That's silly. You can't live in a society, in a world that way. So there is a difference between having good judgment on one hand and judgmentalism on the other. One, we affirm good judgment. On the other hand, we deny and repudiate judgmentalism. Paul engages in good judgment in verse 28, 28, and I think nearly everyone would agree with this. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Let me ask you, is there much in here that we disagree on? Even if you're an atheist, uh, you, you may not appreciate the uh, verse 30, the haters of God, or you may. But this text unifies the vast majority of the world. And let's say even... For the sake of argument, there are a couple of things in here you may not approve of. Good judgment items that you may... The truth is, nearly everything in here we do agree on. We don't want people gossiping and backbiting. Well, we really don't want children to be disobedient to their parents, except in extreme circumstances where parents are encouraging evil behavior. Uh, we don't want people to be violent 
or proud or insolent. We don't want people to invent evil things over and over again and, and ex with exaggerated evil and creative evil. We don't want that. This passage unifies much of the world. Let me ask you this. Why then do you have a desire for what is right and just? Where did that come from? Why does your heart long for peace, which would be an absence of evil? Why does your heart desire what is good? That is the permeation of what is just. Where did that come from? Why do you have that in your heart? And why is what you hold to as far as the good and the evil, the just and the peace, and the peaceful. Why do so many have that in common with you? Atheist, theist, Christian, whoever and whatever you are, why is it that you have those impulses and why do they drive you in so much of your thinking, in your desire, your decision making? They control your own personal decisions and morality. They control even how you vote and your political aspirations for the nation. Why, why is it that you have that within you. Well, somebody may object and say, well, hold on just a minute. If God exists, why is there evil in the world? We, we explain free will. But let me ask you this question. If you ask the question, if God exists, why is there evil, is not the answer to your question in your question. You're implying that there is such thing as evil. Well, if there is evil, then there is good. And if there's evil and good, I must ask you, are you, and you don't believe in God, are you imposing your views upon the rest of us? No, that's not what you're doing at all. You probably have a good vision of what is evil. You probably have a good vision of what is good because there is a supreme lawgiver who's planted it on your heart, which is precisely what verse 18, 19, and 20 say, and verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2. You're implying indeed that there is a supreme lawgiver. You're not imposing your view. You desire everyone to conform to, e conform to good and to shun the evil. And so the conduct and the moral conduct and framework that we share in common is a large argument for the existence of a supreme lawgiver. But there's a fourth item here as well that Paul actually begins with in chapter 1, and that happens to be Christ. Verses 2 through 4, Paul appeals to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, he was separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Four things about Jesus that argue for the existence of God. First, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture. When you're appealing for the existence of God, appeal to the prophecy of Jesus Christ. Martin Bettinger is the retired, a retired mathematics professor at University of Indiana. He's written a number of textbooks that have sold in the millions, of course. And he said, uh, calculated the probability of prophecy and other events in society. He said, if you were to take a blindfolded person, 
and give him an opportunity to choose one marked red grain of sand at a beach. The probability of that he would do it on the first try is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The likelihood of winning the lottery is 1 in 10 to the 7th power. But the probability of one person fulfilling merely nine Old Testament prophecies about Christ and his coming is 1 in 10 to the 76th power. And Old Testament scholars count more than 300 prophecies of the first coming of Christ. Now, do you know what 1 in 10 to the 76th power would look like? That would look like winning the lottery 10 out of 10 times in merely 10 tries. That would mean selecting that red grain of sand four out of four times. Appeal to the prophecy of Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing. Appeal to the faith of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he is called his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The heavenly father is not ashamed to declare Jesus Christ as his son. There's a father, son, spiritual, and eternal, not physical, relationship between Jesus Christ as the son of God and his heavenly father. In fact, in the gospels, which cover 89 chapters of the New Testament, Jesus refers to God as father 165 times. Jesus believed in God. Paul Veets of the University of New York, uh, State University of New York He's written a book entitled The Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. And he did a study of the biographies of the intense and significant atheists of the 19th and 20th century. And he compared that with the biographies of prominent Christians of the 19th and 20th centuries. And he found that the intense atheist, now that's to be distinguished for some of those that are more mild and concerned about uh, academic integrity and uh, those that are civil in their approach to atheism, but the intense atheists, he found, each and every one of them had an enormously difficult relationship with their father. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but very few, and here's what he concluded. An atheist disappointment in and resentment of his own father unconsciously justifies his rejection of God. The basic experience of one's father as either positive or negative is a major contributor to the belief or unbelief in God. And I think he's entirely correct. Now, Freud, of course, said that our belief in God is wish fulfillment. We wish for there to be a God. And so we create and we invent one and we project one into the heavens. Freud would say there really isn't a God, but we want there to be one. And the fact that there is a God who's a heavenly father gives us great comfort. And so we're simply fulfilling our wish for a God by creating a God. Freud's theory can be thrown back on Freud. I would ask Mr. Freud, is your atheism a wish fulfillment? You wish for there to be no God because you don't like fathers. Is that what your atheism is all about? It all boomerangs and comes back as well. And the vast majority of arguments that people use against the existence of God can actually be subject to what some call the roadrunner theory. Do you remember Wiley Coyote and the roadrunner? Do you? Poor Wiley Coyote. Has there ever been a more pitiful figure in all the world? Well, you recall the cartoon. Wiley Coyote would always set up traps for the roadrunner. 
But invariably, what would happen? He would fall into his own trap. And the same is true with all arguments against God. And really all false ideologies, and all, when you turn them back in on themselves, they fall to their own theories. In fact, there are some that say, there is no truth at all anywhere in the world. And my reply is, well, is that true? Well, that's true with just about every false ideology and theology. Norm Geisler goes so far as to say that's true for them all. You can appeal then to the faith of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, well, let me move on. Appeal also, verse number four, to the identity of Jesus. Verse number four, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. When Jesus was on the earth, Jesus declared himself to be God in human flesh. What is the probability that the atheist is right and that Jesus Christ is wrong? And then finally, appeal to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was declared to be the Son of God according to the, or by the resurrection from the dead. Who but God can raise the dead? Well, I don't believe in the resurrection. Well, let me give you an unusual challenge if you don't believe the resurrection. Humble yourself, be willing to go where truth leads you, and then I would, I would dare you. In fact, I would double-dog dare you. No, I would triple dog dare you to attempt to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go ahead and see, and see if you can do that. No one but God can raise the dead. So you can appeal to the prophecy of Christ, the faith of Christ, the identity of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Atheism creates more problems than it solves. The largest problem is, what do you do with Jesus Christ. What the atheist is asking us to believe is that he knows more about the issues of God and his existence than Jesus Christ did. And my question is, what is the probability that the atheist knows more about God and these issues than Jesus Christ? What is the probability? I would say to those who want us to abandon our faith in God, you will have to, and I'm entirely sincere, and I'm not trying to put this back on you, you're going to have to earn more credibility than Jesus Christ to get us to consider that. And even then, we will believe you probably missed something. Jesus Christ is the most credible witness to it all. Well, if that is the case, in reality, why are there then some that would insist on remaining in their atheism? Verse number 18. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's many an atheist that has admitted, I don't believe there is a God because I don't want there to be one. In fact, some have gone so far as to admit I will not embrace the notion of the existence of God because it would mean he would be master over my sexual behavior and I could no longer maintain my autonomy and my independence. I would have to submit. They understand the logical conclusion of there being a God who really does exist and that is he indeed would be Lord. What you have to understand is that truth especially of this kind, 
is not only mental. It's not merely the intelligent that get this. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five that God hides truth from those who think they're wise. But he reveals it to the humble and the babes. There are people with a ninth grade education that know God better than those with terminal academic degrees because of humility. Truth, truth is a mental issue. Get all the education that you can. Don't hear me discourage that. Read everything you can get your hands on with discernment. Read books, however, like you would eat fish. Know the difference between meat and bones. Eat the meat, throw away the bones. Some books are like catfish. Lots of meat. Some are like gar or carp. You must know the difference. So get all that you can. I'm not speaking against education. But truth is not only a mental and intellectual issue. Truth is a moral issue. And if God is going to unveil himself to a person, that person has got to be completely open and humble to the truth wherever it will take him or take her. Truth is a mental and a moral issue. And if we insist on suppressing it by sin and unrighteousness, God will shut the heavens and lock down the truth until we unlock it with humility. Humility is the key to knowing truth. In fact, it's the most important key. Now, I'm happy to say that the vast majority of those that of you are here today, most likely, probably 100% nearly, if not 100%, believe there is a God that is good. It's increasingly difficult in our world, I understand. But I want you to recall what Jesus' half-brother James said about belief in God. He said in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe God is one, well, you've done well. He said, But even the demons believe. The demons believe in the Trinity and the unity of God. The satanic kingdom believes every word in the Bible. I'll go so far as to say that theologically they're as conservative as any American or Baptist or other Christian. In fact, more orthodox than many. They were present when the events of Christ and creation in Israel took place. They followed the trajectory of that and anticipate what is stated in Revelation will come to be as well. And so they have a certain response that actually surpasses the response of many who believe in God. For many people, the belief in God is merely a casual thing. It doesn't affect what they do or what they think or how they treat the Lord Jesus Christ and how they respond to Him. That's not true in the demonic kingdom. In our world, many believe that there is a God but functionally, they go about their life with a practical atheism. 
They don't think about God and his will when they spend any more than an atheist does. They don't think about God and his will when it comes to vocation or sex or their words or their entertainments or any other area of life any more than an atheist does, but they believe in God. They have less of a response then than the demons do. The demons are not atheistic, nor are they casual, because James says here in verse number 19, even the demons believe and they tremble. They don't surrender, but at least they tremble. May I ask you, can you go beyond them today if you believe in God? Can you come to the point that Thomas came, who doubted for a moment, but upon seeing Jesus Christ, collapsed before him and cried out, My Lord and my God, and surrendered his all. Thomas then went up to the prayer room with the others and prayed for ten days. The Spirit came, and soon after that, Thomas went east and planted the gospel from there into India, And to this day, there are Christians there who declare the beginning of their faith and their churches as a result of the missionary ministry of the Apostle Thomas. My Lord and my God, it's time to surrender. In a moment, we will observe the Lord's Supper. And it's important in that time that you, before you take the Lord's Supper, that you know Christ as your Savior, that you followed him in biblical baptism, And that you have settled things with God, made things right with God by faith in Christ, by repentance. And that you make sure that you're in good fellowship with the members of the church. We're going to invite you to do that during this time, so far as it depends on you, to make sure things are settled with God and settled with this church and settled with his people. If you need help in any of those areas, we want you to get it today. And I want to assure you, there's great hope that you can Because this God loves you enough that he sent his son to bleed at the cross for your sins and to die there. He did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for you. And he was so pleased with him, he raised him from the dead. You can be free. You don't have to linger or lumber any longer in your guilt and condemnation before God. You can be free. In fact, you can be friends with God. And he wants you to be even to the extent that he gave his son for you. Friends, that's good news. And we'll celebrate that today. Would you stand quickly with me, please, and let's pray. Dear God, we want to thank you today that you have made your existence and the truth of your son so obvious. And in fact, today, there is no excuse for doubt. Father, I pray that friends today would respond appropriately so that you'd not give them over to a debased mind, that you would not give them over to unrighteousness. But, oh God, please claim them to come to Christ and to follow you. And I pray that you would start a movement here today of such heart and such soul that you would turn the tide powerfully, even in our own culture, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Help friends today to come to know him and to say yes to Jesus. I pray that you would give them the repentance and faith necessary and that you would intervene by the power of the Holy Spirit to make that happen. And Father, I pray that friends would settle things with you today before the Lord's Supper and with one another where it's necessary so far as depends on them. 
Bless your name for hearing us today. You're so kind to do so. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, staff will be standing here in the front. And we're going to ask you to come and respond. Otherwise, no one moving around. This is a sacred time. We want to ask you to come.